0: This morning we're starting a new series, uh, but unlike most of our series, this one isn't going through a book of the Bible. This one is topical. It's on a topic, and the topic is the church. And the aim is for us to be the church we should be, and for you and me to be part of the church as it should be, and for you and me to play our part in the church as it should be. Today, we're starting that series with uh, with what I think should be the start, which is how does the church fit into God's plan for the world? And I want us to get the answer to that from Acts chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, it would be a big help to you to have Acts chapter 2 in front of you. Acts 2. Now, if that doesn't interest you, and maybe you're even starting to switch off already, please don't switch off. Please let me try to persuade you that you should be interested. Because the subject is bigger than the church. And the subject includes you. In 1988, the National Geographic magazine was 100 years old and produced a special edition. And instead of their usual yellow colour, it was a cover, I meant, it was a cover that had a hologram on it. And the hologram was a 3D picture of planet Earth. But as you moved the magazine, that hologram picture of planet Earth fragmented into pieces. And it was entitled Our Fragile Earth. It was a message about the environment, Earth fragmenting. Well, we live in a fragmented world in so many other ways. So many things drive people apart. War, racism, family breakdown, loneliness. Maybe different groups in your school, children who are against each other and don't mix with each other. So much fragmentation. Why is the world like that? And does God have a plan for this fragmented world to bring it back together? Yes, he does. And the church is at the heart of that plan. Let's see that now from Acts 2. What we're going to do is we're going to see the background to Acts 2. And then the centre of Acts 2. And then the result of Acts 2. Let's start with the background. So we're going to move backwards into the Old Testament. The background to Pentecost, which is this. God scatters and gathers. Acts two describes this event, the Day of Pentecost. It's one of the great events in all of history, in all of the Bible, and we need to understand its place in history. So I'm going to give you a quick tour of the Bible's history. It's going to be a bit like riding the underground. You know, in riding the the London Underground, you stop at a station, you you get a quick look at it, and then you're jerked on again and to the next station. It's going to be a bit like that, but I hope you'll manage to. Get this tour of history. We start with a garden. A garden. Because we start at creation. God has created everything and he's put the man in a garden. And it's all very good. It's all very good. Except one thing. The man is alone. And God is against aloneness. God is for togetherness. That makes sense, if you know who God is, because he's the three in one God. One God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He's a relational God and only such a God could be relational and could make relational humans. And so he's against aloneness and he's for togetherness. And so he makes a woman. And there in the garden, the man and the woman are together with each other and they're together with God. It is now all very good, but it doesn't last. It doesn't last because these humans want to go their own way. And so they break the togetherness with God, but that also breaks the togetherness with each other. And God sends them away. God scatters them out of the garden. Scattering is God's curse. Now, children, I'm going to use this word scattering a lot, so let's make sure you know what I mean by it. Imagine you have a handful of gravel, lots of little stones, and you throw them out all over the place. That's scattering. You've made them go all over the place, separated, instead of being together in your hand. Think of that as a picture of what God did because of sin. He scattered people away instead of being together in his hands. Okay, the train in the underground moves on. We can't linger there. Next stop, a tower, a tower. This is in Genesis 11. Again, people say, we will go our own way, not God's way. And they build a tower at a place that later became called Babel. And again, God judges them for their rebellion against him. You're going to go your own way, are you? Well, no, actually, you won't get to do your own thing, he says. And he divides them. He divides them. In Babel, their languages, their language became a babble. That is not me trying to be clever, by the way. That is a play on words that is there in the Bible. In Babel, their language became a babble, confused, divided. And that resulted in them dividing and scattering. Scattering is God's curse. Quickly, we move on. Next stop is a mountain. Mountain. Now God starts to show how he will bless, not just curse. And how does God bless? He gathers some people to himself. People who were slaves in the land of Egypt and he rescues them and he gives them unity. He makes them the nation of Israel and he gathers them together to meet with him at a mountain called Sinai. And there, as they meet together to worship, they are called, significant word, the church. They're gathered. That's God's blessing. Gathering is God's blessing. Now, sadly, even this nation of Israel do the same thing as the people in the garden and the people at the tower. They repeat history and insist on going their own way and pushing God aside. And so the next stop is back to Babel. Back to Babel. God warned those Israelites. He gathered them to himself, but he warned them. If you disobey me, if you go your own way, I'm going to scatter you. And you can read that in Deuteronomy and Psalms and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. They all use the actual word scatter. God says, I will scatter you. If you insist on going your own way. And many of them were scattered back to Babylon. Scattered, I didn't mean to say back to, they were scattered to Babylon. Well, we call it Babylon in English. I'm not quite sure why, because it is exactly the same word as Babel. For some reason, in Genesis 11, we translate it Babel, and elsewhere we translate it Babylon. But it's significant, it's it's the same place where there was scattering judgment and confusion. And the Israelites are sent back there. But God promised that one day he would reverse that scattering and he would gather the people to himself. I'll show you from three chapters about that. And you might like to look at them or you could just listen if you want. It's Ezekiel. So if you know where Ezekiel is, and you can quickly find chapter 34, that might be helpful to you. Or you could just listen, as i tell you, about God saying he will gather the people together. If you've got Ezekiel 34, can you see verse 5? Verse 5, and you'll see there the word scattered. God's people were scattered. It pictures them as a flock of sheep. There's no longer a flock. They're just scattered everywhere, all across the hills and all across the desert. They're scattered because of their sin. They were scattered. But God says, I'm going to gather you. If you've got the chapter, you could look at verse 11 to 13. God says, I'm going to gather you back to myself and back together. For example, verse 13, I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land, back together, gathered. And verse 23 says they're going to be under one shepherd, a shepherd king like David, the great king. I hope you're managing to store all these things in your mind and you'll see where I'm going in a minute with this. Ezekiel 36 says the same sort of thing in different language. So, for example, if you've got the chapter, you could look at verse 24 and God says again, I'm going to gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. You're going to be together again. But in Ezekiel 36, it's linked with the giving of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, verse 27, God says, I'm going to put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees. He's going to gather them and give his spirit. The two go together. And exactly the same thing is pictured in chapter 37. Famous vision of a valley of dry bones. Ezekiel has this vision of a valley. And it's full of bones. But the bones are not together together. In skeletons, they are scattered. They're just lying around all over the place, scattered. Not how bones are supposed to be. They're supposed to be inside us, aren't they? Scattered bones. But God gathers them together. Verse seven. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. But to start with, they're just bone to bone like skeletons together, but dead. Until what? Until the spirit of God comes into them and raises them to life. And later that chapter says, here is a picture of what God is going to do for his people. They're scattered, but he's going to bring them together and his spirit is going to give them new life. Okay, our underground train stopped for quite a while in that station, but we're going to move on and we're going to move on a long way now in our, in our survey of history because we're going to jump right on to Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The shepherd king like David has come and his name was Jesus. And so because of him in Acts 2, we find Babel reversed. We read in verse 6 onwards, earlier on, the language barrier is overcome. And that's why there was that long list of different nations. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, we're not very familiar with them. But there's also Libya and Egypt and Crete, we're more familiar with them. All these different people from different places with different languages, but they're now together and they can understand the message, God's message. Babel is being reversed. People are being brought together. But those people, they're like dry bones. They're dead. But they're brought to new life. How are they raised to new life? Oh, the Holy Spirit is poured out. God gives his spirit who works life in them. So verse 33, for example, says, Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. The Holy Spirit is coming and bringing life to those bones that have been brought together. Ezekiel 34 and 36 and 37 are being fulfilled. God is gathering people to himself. He's gathering them together as a church. In fact, the word church means a gathering together. That's what it means. It doesn't mean some organisation with, uh, with a Pope in Rome or even with a pastor in Hollywood. It means a gathering, a gathering. And that is God's blessing. And that is God's plan for the world, to gather people to himself and together. In fact, all of history... And all of the Bible ends with a great gathering. So my little survey of history ends in the book of Revelation with the great gathering. Revelation describes a crowd gathered around God's throne, worshipping him. And it's made up of people from every language group and ethnic group. Babel will be fully reversed. And there, everyone who trusts in Jesus will be brought together. Whatever, the, whatever their language or their nationality or their social class or their personality or whatever other way you can think of dividing people, it will be gone. Divisions will be gone. They're all together, worshipping God. Scattering is God's curse. But gathering is his blessing. And his plan is to gather people together to him to worship. There, I hope you managed to to cope with the very quick tour. That was the background to the day of Pentecost, gathering and scattering. So let's move on now to the centre of Pentecost. The centre of Pentecost is being gathered to Jesus, gathered to Jesus. Now, Acts chapter two describes the day of Pentecost. And most of the chapter is a sermon preaching by Peter, the apostle Peter. I want us to think about his theme. But first of all, I'll describe to you another theme. Some of you will be familiar with it, some not, but uh, I hope you'll cope if you're not. I'll describe to you the famous story that's been turned into a film, The Lord of the Rings. What's that about? Well, it's about a ring and it's about a battle between good and evil. And it's about a whole load of other battles. And it's about a long journey. But just a minute. All my description so far has been events and things. Isn't the story about people? Yes, about people. Okay, well, which one is the main character? It could be a man called Aragorn, because the last part's called the Return of the King, and he's the king who returns. But some of you say, no, it's about Gandalf. He's this wizard who's very powerful. So I say, no, it's about this chap called Frodo. He carries the ring. It's not 100% clear to me who is the main character, but it is 100% clear who is the main character of Acts chapter 2. Pentecost is the day when Peter preached and the church was born and the Holy Spirit was poured out. But it isn't mainly about events and things. It's mainly about a person. And the main character isn't Peter. And isn't even the Holy Spirit, the main character is Jesus. The big theme is Jesus. Let me just quickly try to show you that by taking you through Peter's sermon. It's fairly simple, this sermon. Verses 14 to 21 are an introduction. The people thought, or or at least the mockers thought, here are some people who've had too much to drink and they're talking in a funny way. Peter grabs that opportunity and says, hey, Pay attention to this. This is actually prophecy being fulfilled. Then in verse 22, he says, now here comes the theme. Verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, he's the theme. And verse 22 is about the life of Jesus. Then verse 23 is the death of Jesus. Then verse 24 is the resurrection of Jesus. You see, it's it's quite a simple sermon. Now, the resurrection of Jesus, you can't expect people to just believe that straight away. We have to admit that's a hard thing to believe. So, verse 25 to 35 is reasons to believe the resurrection of Jesus. Peter spends time on that because he knows it's crucial and it's difficult. Reasons to believe the resurrection of Jesus. And then verse 36 comes the punchline. Here's the conclusion of it all. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You see, the message of Acts 20, of Acts 2 is not look how good the church is and come in. The message of Acts 2 is, look how good Jesus is and come to him. Yes, in Acts 2, and and this is why we're beginning here in in a series on the church, in Acts 2, the people do come into the church and they are devoted. Verse 42, they devoted themselves, they're devoted. But it's not because they've had a talking to about commitment. It's not because they've set up. They've signed up to a set of rules that says, here's the measure of devotion. It's because they've become devoted to Jesus. It's all centered on him. They're gathered to him. They are devoted to him. You can see that in this. What is the thing that's really got to the heart of these people? What's really got to their heart? It's it's the message of verse 36. It's the punchline of the sermon. Verse 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And that has got to their heart. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. It gets to them. We now see who Jesus is and we've killed him. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, we have a problem here. Well, at least most of us do. Our problem is we're so familiar with this. So familiar. And if we weren't familiar with it, what would be our answer we would think of when they say, what shall we do? Surely the answer would be nothing. You can't do anything about that, can you? You have killed the son of God. You cannot reverse killing someone. You have done the foulest deed in history, murdered the Messiah, slaughtered the Son of God. You can't undo that. Too late. Just wait for God to damn you. What shall we do? What a silly question. You can't do anything about that, can you? That that ought to be our instinctive response. But we're rather familiar with the story and we know the good news. The good news is there's a different response. The answer isn't nothing. The answer is verse 38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. In other words, the answer is turn to Jesus. And then you can get forgiveness from this same Jesus you killed because he's alive and he's loving. That's amazing. Turn to Jesus and you can get forgiveness from the very same one you have syndicated so horribly. Is it any wonder they're devoted to him? Well, how about you? How about you? Have you turned to Jesus? Have you received forgiveness from him? Are you amazed that he should love me and die for me? The one who syndicates him. Are you devoted to him? We've had the background to Pentecost. We've had the center of Pentecost. Jesus is the center. Now we have, lastly, the result of Pentecost. Gathered in the local church. Gathered in the local church. They're devoted to Jesus, but it has a practical outcome. Gathered in the local church. Now, I have a brother called John. He's got the same surname as me, because he's my brother. He's got the same dad as me, not the same mum, because we're half brothers. So, he's, he's family. We're in the same family. But, but it's, it seems a bit theoretical, because 20 years ago, he left his wife and children and went off to Australia and has nothing to do with any of us. I haven't spoken to him or seen him for about 20 years. He is family. Theoretically, and and actually, we still have the same dad, the same surname, still inherited some of the same characteristics. But that family is not put into practice at all because he's the other side of the world and there is no contact. When God gathers people to himself into his family, it is to be put into practice. And it's put into practice in the local church. And that's what is described in verse 42 onwards. Verse 42 onwards. If you've got a heading above verse 42, in a sense, ignore it because it follows straight on from verse 41. These people become devoted to Jesus. They turn to him and it's put into practice in the local church. How would you describe that church? If you're familiar with the passage or if you can just remember it from having read it earlier or if you're just glancing at it now, verse 42 onwards. How would you describe that church? What words come to mind? I reckon it would be words like together. The word together comes up a lot in the early chapters of Acts. Together. I think it would be words like worshipping and God focused, but also caring and sharing. They're God focused, but they're concerned for people. They're together. And that makes sense because they are gathered to God and that results in worship. For example, verse 42, they listen to the apostles teaching because they want to learn about God who has drawn them to himself. They, verse 42, remember the death of Jesus by breaking bread, what we call the Lord's Supper. Verse 47, they praise God. They're a worshipping church because God has gathered them to himself. But they're also a church that cares for each other because when God gathers to himself, he gathers us together. Children, do you have a bicycle? And can you picture the spokes on your bicycle? Think of God as being like the hub in the middle of your wheel. Where the spokes are nearest to the hub, they're also nearest to each other. They come together around the hub. That's God's plan for us, that we come to him and it brings us together so that we are a worshipping church, but also caring for each other. So verse 42, they're devoted to the fellowship. The word simply means sharing. They share life together. In fact, verse 44, we find they share their things together, their possessions when people are in need. Verse 46, they share meals together, enjoy each other's company. Now, it's a bit artificial to try to separate out which bits of worship and which bits of fellowship because it all goes together so much. Breaking of bread, verse 42. Well, that is. That's eating together. Fellowship and remembering the death of Jesus. Worship. Prayer, verse 42. Well, that's showing we need God. Worship. But it's also children speaking to their father. Fellowship. Verse 46, they're in the temple courts. Well, that implies worship. The temple's all about God. But the verse emphasises they want to be together. They love each other and they love spending time together. Worship and fellowship, totally intertwined. And you can't separate them out. They're not just people in the same location, but people who care for each other. They are a demonstration of God's plan for the world. God is bringing people together to himself in worship and fellowship. Well, I've covered a lot of ground, but I want to end with two short applications, two ways that we should respond to this. Here's the first one. Treat the church as at the heart of God's plan, not just a resource for you and me. That was quite a long sentence. so I'll say it again. Treat the church as at the heart of God's plan, not just a resource for you and me. I'll give you a made up example. Akira loves Jesus. She is keen to serve. She wants to be equipped to serve. She's keen to live for Jesus. And she goes on a course and she listens to podcasts and she reads good books. And she's equipped to serve. And her attendance at church is patchy. She always makes sure she's on her course, always there. She's not always at church. She quite easily misses that. And when she does come, she disappears off pretty quickly afterwards. She doesn't work at getting to know people. Akira's heart is in the right place. She loves Jesus. She genuinely does. And she wants to live for him. But she hasn't seen the place of the church in God's plan. Have you? Have you seen the place of the church in God's plan? Here's the second lesson for us. Treat the church as a family, not a restaurant. That one was a shorter, easier easy one to remember. Treat the church as a family, not a restaurant. You go to a restaurant and it gives you a nice meal. And there are other people in the restaurant being given a nice meal. But do you feel under obligation to go and get to know them? And to find out their troubles and to care for them. Do you feel bad if you never see those people again? No, because it's a restaurant, not a family. A restaurant is very different from a family. Do you treat the church like a restaurant, turn up and get served? And there are some other people in the same building turning up and getting served. Or do you treat the church as a family? That means we're people in relationship who have obligations to each other, who should care for each other. And there's loads of ways we could apply that. There's loads of lessons that flow out of that. But I'm just going to leave that in your mind and ask you, have a think this week. What it means for the church to be a family. Have a think this week, how it should affect what you do, that the church is a family, not a restaurant. Next week, God willing, we'll hear from a verse that says the church is the family, the household of God.